Well, good morning, everyone. Before, uh, before we look at John 1, uh, once again, let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for uh, the many ways in which you bless us, and we thank you this morning for your word and the way you nourish us by it. We pray, Lord, that as we continue to look at John's gospel, that your spirit will continue to do his work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Weddings are really festive occasions. They're usually filled with celebration because everyone's happy for the, the couple most of the time. Uh, there are those horror stories about weddings that go wrong and all that kind of thing, but they're usually very festive. But they're also usually very public. Yes, you can get married very quietly in a registry or you can elope or you know, that kind of thing, but usually weddings are big occasions because they bring together two people into a union that will affect them, as well as everyone around them, for the rest of their lives. It's a very solemn occasion. Because what's actually happening is a covenant is being made. Two people from different backgrounds, from different families, uh, bring, you hope, are being brought together... Sorry, I've been doing a lot of Ptolemaic history recently. and <laughs> Yeah, don't, don't always work that way back then. Um, but you, two people from separate families are being brought together as a husband and a wife and they're forming a new family unit. And everyone around them is witnessing this so that they can recognise and support the new couple and this new family unit. It's also why the signing of the registry is so important. You have to get the legal documents prepared and signed and witnessed so that everyone understands that a covenant has been made and a new identity has been formed with this new family unit. And witnesses to this are really important. It's really, really important. If you've got John open there, flip back to John chapter 1. And I'll pick it up from verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light... He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, if you recall, just before this, John has described, that is the Gospel writer, has described Jesus as life and light. And as light, Jesus exposes the sinfulness of human beings but also brings the revelation of the knowledge of God. And here, John, the Gospel writer, introduces us to another John, John the Baptist, and tells us that John the Baptist came as a witness, a witness to the light, to the Word, that is, to the Lord Jesus. Now, we're all familiar with the story of John the Baptist. We know about... Uh, from the other Gospels about uh, his parentage and how he was proclaiming in the desert 
a message of repentance because the kingdom of God was coming and that God was ready to swing the axe in judgment against his people Israel. And we kind of know that John's the precursor to Jesus. But I want to look here at what John the Gospel writer says about John the Baptist as a witness. He says he came as a witness to testify concerning the light. Now, just as John, uh, just as wedding guests and, you know, the, the people who sign the registry of uh, a wedding are important because what they do is they validate what's actually happened. You also get witnesses that bring evidence in court and their testimony is weighed up. But I think what John's trying to say here is that John the Baptist was more like someone signing the registry. It's not that necessarily you need to weigh up the evidence that John the Baptist is presenting. Rather, John the Baptist came and signed on the dotted line to say, yes, Jesus is the bona fide light of the world. And I will confirm that. John the Baptist was the person whom Jesus said was the last in the long line of all the prophets leading up to him. John was the one who came before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And when we go back to Malachi, uh, the prophet Malachi there says to the people of Jerusalem, you're waiting for the great day of the Lord to bring salvation, but it's actually going to be a day of judgment. And before that day comes, the great Elijah figure will come. And that's John the Baptist. The nation of Israel was waiting for a prophet who would arrive in their midst, who would point the way forward for the nation. The nation of Israel who had gone through one empire after another, been oppressed by foreign peoples, and even their own leaders had turned into their own oppressors. And they were waiting for a prophet, a reliable prophet, to come and say, now is the time for change. We're entering a new age. This is what is going to happen. This is where your hope should lie. And he was going to point the way forward. And John the Gospel writer says, John the Baptist was that prophet. And what does John the Baptist say? I'm not the light, but I can show you who is. I'm the prophet, in other words, who is pointing the way to the nation to a new age of judgment as well as salvation. I think as we read the Gospels, we, we kind of know where the story ends up, right? We know that there is the cross. We know that there is the empty tomb and we know that salvation comes to the whole world as a result of these events. But I think as a result of that, one of the things that we miss is the message of judgment that also comes through in the Gospels. The Gospels tell us the story about the rejection of Jesus. The rejection 
of the salvation that God brought to his people Israel. The rejection of the light, the rejection of the word, the rejection of God. I mean, just think about it. God, the word, enters the nation of Israel, the nation that he had made a covenant with. He covenanted them to himself. He was their God. They were his people. He belonged to them. They belonged to him like a marriage. And the prophets describe that covenant relationship between God and Israel as a marriage between a husband and a wife. They belonged together. And when God comes to rescue his people, Israel, his covenant beloved people, they kill him. John, the gospel writer, picks that up in verse 10. The true light, God the word, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Isn't that a tragic story. The centuries of God's relationship with his covenant people reached their culmination in this moment and it's a moment of rejection. It is absolutely tragic. Notice what also John does here. He talks about Jesus coming to his own And in saying that, he picks up this notion that Israel belonged to God and God belonged to Israel. Yahweh was the God of Israel. No other nation had that kind of relationship with God. No other nation could say, Yahweh is our God. In the psalm that we recited uh, today, it said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Yahweh. And yet they reject him. And while that might not come as a surprise, knowing the storyline of the Old Testament and how Israel time and time again turns away from God and becomes the adulterous wife who continually turns away from her faithful husband, Yahweh, while that might not surprise us, notice what John does. He basically implies in verses 10 and 11 that the nation of Israel, which belonged to God, because it rejected God, rejected God the Word, has now become indistinguishable from the world. That nation that God brought out of Israel called to be holy as he is holy, to be different from all other nations because of their relationship with him, because they have now rejected God the word, they have now become indistinguishable from all the nations, the world. Now, don't get me wrong. God loved the world. 
As we go forward in John's Gospel, we learn of God's love for the world. He loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. But the world in and of itself is opposed to God, turns away from God, would prefer to live in the darkness of its own sinfulness, in the darkness of not knowing God. And that's a challenge to us. We are here gathered this morning as brothers in Christ, as people belonging to God, and yet so often we do turn back to the darkness. We do love the darkness. We love our sinfulness. And sometimes we just want to keep reveling in it time and time again. And sometimes even we want to come out of the darkness, we want to come into the light, and yet we, we just fall back into it time and time again. And every time we do, it's a rejection of the Lord Jesus. But let's remember, God loved the world. He loved us. In our darkness, he came to us to shine his light on us. And so John continues his gospel in verse 12. Yet, to all who did receive him, to all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Faith in the word, faith in the Lord Jesus, leads to an adoption an adoption as God's child. Now, if we think about adoption, adoption's great. Adoption is fantastic because it takes someone who doesn't have parents and gives them parents, gives them a family. Adoption allows someone who is essentially alienated on their own and gives them a new legal identity. A, a new covenant is created by signing on the dotted line of an adoption. Now, in some way, adoption is what I guess we would call a legal fiction. That is, it's not as though an adopted child becomes the biological offspring of the parents who are adopting them. That doesn't happen. But legally, we treat that child as though they were the actual biological offspring of the parents who are adopting them. It's a legal fiction. Now, it's legally binding, so it does create a new legal identity and we treat an adopted person as the offspring of their legally adopted, uh, adoptive parents, but it's a legal fiction. It doesn't alter the person's DNA. 
Now, we have legal fictions all over the place. We need legal fictions, really, in order to operate as a, you know, a, a decent society that is orderly in some way. You know, like if you, if you park your car in a no-parking zone or you stop in a no-stopping zone, you haven't in some way gone against the very fabric of nature as God has created it. You've just gone against the legal fiction. It's wrong to park there or stop there, right? Okay. Now, notice what John does here in his Gospel. He says, if you believe in Jesus then you get adopted, you become a child of God and he says, this is actually something that's more than just a legal fiction. It's a lot more than that. Now, when we look at what adoption is throughout the Bible... It's not actually mentioned very much, especially in the Old Testament. It's not very, mentioned very much at all. Moses gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter when she draws him out of the water, out of that basket, and uh, essentially raises him as though he is her own son. She becomes his adoptive mother. But that just highlights the legal fiction, right? Moses was not an Egyptian. Moses was a Hebrew and his people were Israel. And in God's election and God's sovereignty, he was raised to become the, peop- the person who would save his people, Israel. We also see adoption when God makes a covenant with David. Those of you in second year, we were talking about this yesterday. God agrees with David, makes a covenant with David to adopt his son and heir as his own son. But once again, it's, a, it's kind of a legal fiction. It's not as though somehow David's son or the Davidic kings became actual sons of God. They were kind of, you know, divine by association, but they didn't become somehow intrinsically divine because they were the Davidic kings who ruled as God's son whom God had installed on the throne to rule on behalf of him, they were still just ordinary human beings descended from David. In the Roman world, adoption was all over the place. In fact, Roman aristocrats adopted each other left, right and centre. It was the, the hot thing to do. You adopted someone who you thought was better than your own offspring and you adopted them, and they could then become the uh, heir of all your estate and actually go places and do things. Uh, We know that the Roman emperors did this all the time. Uh, All the Roman emperors were adopted by the previous emperor until the end of the first century. It's not until we get to the 70s AD that we finally get an emperor who's the real offspring son of the previous emperor. Otherwise, they're all adopted. And it's all a legal fiction. We act as though it is the real thing. But the deepest reality in the DNA and the identity of each each adopted person is they are the offspring of someone else. And that can't be gotten around. But notice what John says here. To everyone who believed in his name, 
he gave the right, not the chance, the possibility, but the right to become children of God. Children not of natural descent. Now, the Greek phrase that John uses there is not born of blood. In other words, having the DNA of uh, of a parent. Not of human decision, that is literally not of the will of flesh, not someone else's decision, you know, someone else can decree whether or not you're a child of God, no. Not of a husband's will, the, the will of a man. It's not as though a, a husband can decide to have a child or to adopt a child, no. John says that if you believe in his name, you become a bona fide, real child of God. There is no legal fiction here. There is a fundamental transformation in your identity. It's as though, by faith, God has given you his DNA. God has made you a real child of God. And that is your most fundamental identity. In other words, nothing that can take place in this life, no decision that someone else makes, either for you or you yourself, can change the fact that your identity is now at its base fundamental level child of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Folks, when we're not just talking about abstract ideas here. John the Baptist was a real person and shows us that the Lord Jesus coming was a real historical thing. He didn't occupy just some mythical world in someone's imagination. He entered our world and John the Baptist was a witness to this. And in the same vein, we are real bona fide children of God. Next time you look at your ID, your driver's licence, passport, if ever we get to travel again one day, who knows, or your birth certificate, especially your birth certificate, it'll tell you who your human parents are. But just remember, that's a human legal document, as important as it is. It's a human legal document. Your fundamental identity is, by faith, a child of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great praise and thanks for the great blessing it is to be called your children. We thank you, Father, for the gift of faith that you have granted to us. And we pray, Father, that we may be rooted in that identity that we have in the Lord Jesus himself. That we would be reminded daily not to turn away from him, to turn back to the darkness, but to live in light of his light 
and our new identity in you as children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.